Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, Emmett here. If you were listening last week, you'll know that we will be hosting our first ever Stock Club Live podcast in less than two weeks' time. The gang and I will be taking to the stage at Dublin's Herbert Park Hotel on the evening of Wednesday, November 23rd, where we will look back on the roller coaster that was 2022 and make some of our predictions for what 2023 will bring, including picking some of the stocks that we think are set to thrive next year. I can't wait for it. It's going to be a great night and a first for Stock Club. Tickets are just €20, which includes a couple of free drinks at the bar. There are just a handful of seats remaining, so don't miss out. Bring a friend or two and get a head start on the market for 2023. Just click on the link in the podcast description to book your tickets now. See you on the 23rd. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about the circus that is Twitter right now, the state of the ride-hailing industry, and we discuss whether people are prioritizing their Netflix subscriptions over food. Right, lads, I know we're at risk of talking about the same thing every week on this show, but I don't think we can't mention Elon Musk and Twitter and the absolute hit show, we'll call it, or a cluster duck, whichever you prefer. Uh, Rory, duck, that's a new one well we, we can't curse on this show i remember it was like my ah, second podcast no like there's an apple thing about it james james said i had to go re-record like a sentence where i cursed there's so, not yeah probably. yeah no it is because we have like a family friendly rating and if we curse on it we lose the family friendly rating and it's like not good for your promotion on the podcast app yeah okay god what's my language going for it <laughs> well you seem pretty good so far anyways Rory, Amory, did you think it could go this far south this quick with Twitter? I was on holidays during the whole thing, so I kind of just um, <laughs> kind of just tried my best to ignore it. To be honest, it was well, it was happening so fast; it was hard to kind of cling on to any one thing. Um, I do like now that having like having started his Twitter ownership with the bird is free and free speech is back on the platform. <laughs> that he's begun perma banning anyone who like pretends to be him. Yeah, um, just makes fun of him in general. Like. Yeah, I also saw at some point, at some point last night, I think they um, they stopped or they prevented people from changing their names uh, for some reason. And some, someone with the handle Elon Musk fondles dogs complains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes the family family rating. We just lost it right there. <laughs> just when we had it. Oh, dear. Oh. Uh, my my favorite part was when they started laying people off and then the next day they started calling people up going i'm sorry we didn't realize how valuable you were to the company can you come back because we can't run this without you that was pretty bad yeah it's not a good luck is it i feel like elon is getting a very quick tutorial in how difficult social media actually is and (laughs) you know like for all the like everyone you know who's on twitter or any social media account constantly complains about you know Oh, it doesn't do this, and I wish it would do that. And why don't they stop this? 
it's just really difficult. Like, it's just not an easy thing to kind of, you know, get all those cats to walk in a row. You know, they're just, people are mad and people do mad things when they're kind of unleashed on the world in, in the form that social media has taken. And, and trying to corral them all to, to behave is just a really difficult endeavor. One that I don't think many people would take on, especially when it's, it's going to cost them $44 billion. Yeah, it's like a lesson for armchair experts and backseat drivers everywhere. Just, you know, let people do what they're doing. Yeah. I suppose Elon also has a bit of a habit of he really likes to go things alone. Like I think like SpaceX and Tesla, he's kind of pushed out other people. Like you know, even like the original Tesla founders, he kind of pushed them out. And like when you're so reliant on advertising, that's not really the way you can go. Like you can't push out every other company that maybe wants to advertise on you because 90% of Twitter's revenue is advertising. And now pretty much every major brand in the United States said, oh, we're pausing all of our all of our Twitter spending. So, oh, it's not great. Like, he's not really suited to the job, to be honest. No. It's kind of like if you had, if like, if someone who was really good at fantasy football decided that they want... <laughs> Give him the United, yeah. You know, yeah, or, yeah, decided they wanted to, like, you know, be the head coach of, like, the Denver Broncos. <laughs> they just are like... I'm really good at this, you know, I like, and he probably thinks he is really good at it because he's got all these followers and people respond to him. He's like, I can fix this. Like, <laughs> this is so easy. This is so easy. Why don't like, why don't they just do what I say? You know? Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, that's the, that's the experience of pretty much every sports fan in the world. I mean, if you ever go to a pub in Dublin, you'll just see countless, usually overweight men screaming at the, you know, the best <laughs> athletes in the world. Why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? Oh, absolutely. Christy Moore picking the team. (laughs) (laughs) On a kind of more serious note, I suppose it's always fun to make fun of Elon Musk, but for a Tesla shareholder, you got to be pretty concerned at the minute. I know, I think, was it just today he sold off a bunch of shares? Yeah, four billions worth sold today. Yeah, just the casual four bill here and there. Yeah, you know, throw it around. But I suppose like so much of Tesla's valuation over the years has been just revolved around the cult of Elon and his personality. And, you know, maybe this is just is is there a kind of sheen coming off the cult of elon or because he he seemed to always be this bonkers like it it, has he become more bonkers recently more publicly bonkers maybe yeah i was just about to say is because he's now so connected to twitter i think he's become more active on twitter which gives him more of a public platform to appear bonkers i think that's kind of what's happened this also doesn't he have like a thing where his lawyers have to vet every tweet or is that gone like that was fully um, yeah. thing there for a while. <laughs> They're not doing their jobs. I think they, I mean, I think he applied to a judge recently to try and get that waived. I think they told him no, because that was part, that was like, it was part of a deal with the SEC. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. That'd be hilarious. God, what a job. <laughs> They're going to be busy. <laughs> Jesus. His lawyer probably has a chair in the content moderatorship part of Twitter and they just sat him there and he said, you stay there yeah. and, I'll, and I'll come <laughs> and I'll come back anytime I want to think about something. Oh yeah, an absolute mess. But uh, we can't stay on Twitter for too long. So anyway, we don't have to talk about it anymore. It's not a public company. We just, exactly. Yeah, it's off true. our off our plates. Which is nice. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to uh, two companies who have never done anything wrong: uh, Uber and Lyft. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Lyft uh, reported earnings earlier this week, and it was a bit of a mixed bag. The stock fell about 20% on Tuesday after Wedbush analyst Dan Ives called a modest disappointment. I'd hate to see what would have happened if it really messed up, but um, the drop can be put down to a miss on revenue, but maybe more so 
falling short of the standards Uber set the week before when it performed really well. Rory, for two businesses that have kind of been intrinsically linked for so long, are we starting to see them diverge? Would you agree with the market here that Uber is kind of the much stronger business compared to Lyft? Um, I, I probably think it's always been clear that Uber was the stronger business. Um, I mean, if you're looking kind of purely at the kind of key operating metrics that you would tend to look at, you know, it, it always had the clear first mover advantage in the space. I think they, Uber started about two, three years before um, before Lyft. It always had more users. It always, has, it always had more drivers. It always had higher revenue. It always had bigger market share. Um, Lyft's kind of play was that it was, you know, the kind of soft Uber. Um, it kind of marketed itself as like this Uber with a conscience. Um, whether, it was up, whether it was or not, it kind of for debate, but they kind of definitely put themselves out there as, you know, being more in tune with drivers, treat like paying them better, being kind of safer for passengers. Um, in fact, I was listening to an interview with Karis Fisher, the famous tech journalist a few years ago, and she was saying that like when she first met the founders of Lyft, she was like, they're such nice guys, you know, they're really thoughtful. And they said like, Travis is going to destroy them. <laughs> referring to, kind of, referring right. to Travis Kalanick, who was... Um, Uber's founder CEO and, and all around piece of work, <laughs> all around bad, bad person. Yeah, um, <laughs> and at one point, you know, Tra- Travis actually tried to buy out Lyft, uh, but the founders turned them down. Um, so Kalanick went on this real kind of Zuckerberg Snapchat, uh, destroy at all costs project. And in fact, like there certainly was a moment, I think around 2016, when it did look like Uber had kind of won the rivalry, Lyft really wasn't able to compete in terms of like the marketing spend or the promotions. Uber basically like completely slashed its rates, totally subsidized their drivers. Um, Lyft wasn't able to to follow suit. And uh, at one point they only had kind of four months worth of cash left. But Uber survived. They ended up going public before Uber. I think Lyft's management would tell you that that was all down to their strategy, which was certainly kind of more focused than Uber's. You know, they didn't get involved in helicopters and businesses and Vietnam and AI and growth at all costs. Um, that kind of takes away from what was a really, I mean, utterly disastrous 2017 that Uber really inflicted upon itself. Uh, to, you know, to list all the missteps they took around that time would be a fool's errand, but you know, highlights include Kalanick joining newly elected President Trump's advisory council. Um, then they, they lifted surge pricing during this protest over said president's travel ban. Uh, this, that started an online protest that reportedly led to half a million users deleting the app. There were sexual harassment allegations. There was a video of Kalanick arguing at the driver. You know, it just went on and on. And suddenly Lyft were back in the game, this kind of alternative to the kind of toxic culture that was festering under Kalanick's leadership. And obviously now, you know, the new CEO at the helm, and he's much more kind of user-friendly, let's say, yeah. <laughs> PR-wise. It's a nice, nice way of putting it, yeah. Um, but it does seem like we've kind of cut to this point now where Uber seems to be you know, getting its edge back and Lyft does seem to be very much falling behind. So then with the two earnings reports in questions, where was the divergence? What's what's Uber doing that Lyft just isn't? I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't say either company had outstanding results. Uber certainly were much stronger than Lyft. It's kind of become apparent now that Uber is edging much closer to profitability than Lyft, um, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily be the case given the relative size of both these businesses. And just because you're, you're bringing in more revenue doesn't mean that you're going to be able to turn a profit any faster than, com- than a company that's bringing in less. But it does seem to be the case when you look at these kind of earnings side by side and you kind of look at the momentum of these two businesses over the last kind of couple of months, 
Uber is kind of strong, showing you know pretty strong momentum and revenue growth. It was up seventy three percent year over year in the last report. That's that's certainly helping kind of further down the line in terms of adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow. A note adjusted there. They're seeing kind of stronger demand, both in terms of kind of new drivers and new riders. Their bookings were up 26%. Users were up 14%. Requests were up 19%. And it really doesn't look like that demand is slowing, despite the sort of macroeconomic headwinds that we've heard pretty much every management team talk about over this course, this earnings season. In fact, Uber management seems kind of upbeat about the, the coming quarter and, and kind of return to travel and return to, you know, office culture and stuff is helping that. On the other hand, you know, Lyft's really kind of hasn't really recovered from the pandemic at all. It's growing much slower. The net revenues for the company were only of 22%, you know, compare that with over 70% for Uber. And, and, and you know, that's, that's a huge divergence, even before you consider the kind of law of large numbers, you would think Uber at this point would be growing a lot slower. Their riders are only growing by 7%. Their total rides grew by 10% over the quarter. So it does seem that like, there was, I suppose, the the pandemic obviously caused serious concern for both these businesses, largely because, you know, they, well, they couldn't operate for several quarters, just total lockdown across a lot of the, the places that they, they operate. And then there was this kind of very slow rollout uh, of people getting back into the, the ride sharing thing. Um, Uber seems to have kind of recovered, bounced back quite strongly. Lyft, for some other reason, just seems to have kind of fallen out of people's consciousness and and you know, that could come down to marketing spend. It could come down to just, you know, the size of Uber and the fact that it's just kind of more prominent in people's minds. Also, you know, more drivers you have now, you know, when you, when you get into a situation that we have been seeing where there's a kind of pent up demand and less supply, obviously it's going to take a lot longer for you to get a Lyft driver than it is to get an Uber driver, given the, given the fact that they have a, a bigger kind of network. And zooming out then, like last month, Department of Labor uh, unveiled a proposal that it would make it harder for companies to treat workers as independent contractors. Obviously, Uber and Lyft drivers and delivery drivers are all independent contractors. It's kind of what the business is based on. What are the kind of implications here or what do people see, I suppose, as the success of this bill? You know, it's always hard to comment when it comes to changes in American legislation. We talked about this beforehand with companies like MasterCard and Visa. There always seems to be some sort of legislative push on something in America. The problem is that there's obviously a huge lobbying industry there that holds a huge amount of sway, more so than any other democracy. And money talks. These companies have a lot of it. They're willing to spend it uh, to protect their interests. You know, we saw that two years ago when Uber, Lyft, DoorDash and others pretty much pumped you know, millions of dollars into a proposition in California to fight essentially what this effort is uh, by the Department of Labor. Very similar proposal. And... Dara Karashawi, you know, the CEO and the squeaky clean face of Uber was out promising that this was going to be great for drivers. It was actually going to improve their take home pay and, and their benefits and all this. All total twaddle, of course. Um, you know, studies have shown that drivers much worse off since that proposal passed, uh, despite the California Supreme Court actually intervening on some of the measures, but they're still way worse off. Now, the Department of Labor is looking to crack, like reclassify all drivers and employees. Both Uber and Lyft have said that they expected such measures and that it won't impact their business models. Again, that sounds like rubbish to me. If it wasn't going to impact your business model, why'd you spend so much in Proposition 20? But maybe they believe that it's not going to go through. You know, if it does, it is going to massively increase costs, which they'll have to pass on to consumers. And maybe they think that they're kind of embedded enough in the transport ecosystem that consumers are going to kind of stick around. Or maybe they just know the chance of the proposals going through the way they are set out now is pretty unlikely. Yeah. Uh, you kind of touched on something there. I want to ask 
maybe a, a bigger question. You, you had a great quote way back when where Uber sold us this lie that you could have a personal chauffeur for however much money. And, you know, it was built on VC money and whatever else. And I think that exposed a lot of the ride-hailing industry, the delivery industry. It was like, this is cheaper than it should be. And that's how they grew. Like, what are your thoughts on that industry as a whole? Do you think they're truly viable economic models? Or do you think it might come crashing down soon? Or as you said, do you think Uber and Lyft have, and ride-hailing as a whole has kind of established itself enough as just this modern infrastructure aspect, I suppose. I mean, it's a model that can work. Well, first of all, it's a model that can work in a monopoly very well because then you don't have to compete constantly with pricing for consumers and drivers. You know, it's it's not that these companies necessarily lack economic moats, but it's maybe that a lot of the economic moats that we look for when looking for an investment aren't quite as strong as some people think they are. So, you know, you could argue that Uber has a strong brand. And if if you think about a strong brand as simply a brand that people recognize, then I would agree with you. But when we look at brand through the lens of economic moats, what we want to see is that brand strength translate into something more concrete. So, you know, being able to charge more for you for something than your competitors can. Um, and the case of Uber and Lyft and the food delivery apps, I haven't seen much evidence of that. You know, consumers en masse typically go with the cheapest option, which led to this nonstop promotional activity, which led to massive losses by pretty much every company in this space since they've been founded. Network effects, they're another thing we look for. And, you know, you could argue that Uber has developed network effects in terms of the number of drivers it has and the number of users. But again, it's not quite as strong as one would hope for because drivers aren't Uber employees, which means they can drive for whatever service they want. And they do. And while many will lean into Uber because that's where the most riders are going to be, they'll also turn over to Lyft or Bolt or one of the other options if there's, a, if there's someone paying more per mile. And so, I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about back when we looked at these businesses, you know, a few years ago, that essentially they were entering into this kind of this. There was two people that were trying to please on both sides. And when you, you know, the, the drivers and the riders um, and when you threw in food delivery, you were adding in a third. So you're driving, you're talking about the, the drivers, the the end consumer and the restaurant. And you can't keep all those three happy and collect a tasty profit at the end. It just doesn't work. Someone had to get, you know, done over in that scenario. Yeah. And then oftentimes it was drivers. And, and in the case of food delivery, it's restaurants and drivers. And um, the customers who paid 15 euro for a sandwich to get delivered. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally they would dare to, uh, to actually charge the consumers what, you know, yeah. the value of what they were getting. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's a little bit of a lie and I do think that, you know, if, if Uber can continue to kind of muscle out Lyft and, you know, potentially they get to profitability, you know, it, it, I do think you could see returns in the stock eventually, but, you know, I don't think it's nearly worth the $150 billion that the company was, you know, trying to IPO at just a few years ago. Yeah. The only thing I will say is though, I don't think anyone's ever going back to calling a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> that's their one their one true economic moat maybe yeah it's like it's you know there's a, you, there's something to be said for the innovations at uber like surge pricing is a good idea you know it it genuinely does work you know if you want to get more drivers out when there's more demand surge pricing makes sense um it was just this kind of consistent need to to screw their drivers essentially was the because their model was predicated upon you know being a hundred billion dollar business yeah very good. Thanks, Roy. No problem. Uh, no worries. <laughs> Anytime you're free. <laughs> Moving on then. 
We read a recent study uh, from the National Research Group, and it found that most Americans are likely to cut back on eating out clothes or even groceries rather than cancel their subscriptions to services like Amazon Prime and Netflix. Of the 2,500 participants, 51% said subscriptions now make up a significant portion of their monthly spending. On average, customers estimate they spend $135 a month and 18% of their monthly budget on subscriptions. Amory, I think it's fair to say that we're looking like we're heading into some form of recession in the near future. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you how severe it's going to be. If you would like to divulge that information, please. (laughs) (laughs) No, plead the fifth. Yeah. (laughs) But but there is going to be cutbacks of some sort across the board. With churn a major issue for these services, especially among streamers, I would have thought that they would have been the first to go once people tighten their belts. This study is kind of saying the opposite to that. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting result, but I suppose it's kind of a reminder that while we tend to think of discretionary spending as first to go, you do need to remember that people need some kind of little joy in their life. You know, kind of our thinking on this sometimes stems from that, you know, they keep doing all these interviews on the street in London and they keep interviewing Tories and they'll come up and say, oh, people will be able to afford houses if they cancel their Netflix subscriptions. And like, we all know that's not true. And so- <laughs> It's um, like the, avoc- con- the avocado toast brigade, like- yeah, like, but we've seen this across like a number of categories, like cosmetic spending is on the rise, luxury items are pretty recession resistant, and even like cinema attendance is increasing in the last couple of months. And if we look back at 2008, we saw a very similar thing. So big splurges went away, like vacations, so that impacted airlines and hotels, but small splurges remained in place. Some of them even grew. So in the wake of the Great Recession, Netflix kind of became mo- far more dominant, I think, than people were expecting. And it was kind of an opportunity for it to set itself apart from the competition and really prove its worth in the eyes of consumers. Of course, like Netflix looked pretty different in 2008. You know, it was still a subscription model, but it was DVD based um, and they were still sending it in the mail. But I suppose the fundamental premise was almost the same. You know, it's unlimited entertainment for a standard monthly fee. In 2008, Netflix subscriber growth increased 26% to 9.3 million, um, accelerating from the year before. And then it jumped even faster in 2009. It was up 31% to 12.3 million. At the same time, Blockbuster, which is, you know, the original name and DVD rental, saw its revenue fall by 20%, while same-store sales growth dropped to negative uh, 14%. So uh, not to mention kind of all that debt that Blockbuster was carrying around at the time. So Clearly, it, it seems to be this opportunity for you to prove yourself to consumers. And if they determine you have a good deal, um, it seems like they'll be happy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They keep you around. Yeah, and I think, look, the headline sounds good. People are foregoing groceries for their Amazon Prime or Netflix subscriptions, but there, there is 
probably a more nuance to that. It's probably going to a less expensive grocery store instead yeah. of you can't see your Netflix and everything else. But we like a bit of sensationalism here at my Wall Street, you know. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you touched on something there about what is discretionary spending, and I suppose subscriptions are just an ever-present part of life for so many people now, more so than ever, I would imagine. So should we start to consider them non-discretionary spending? Like what what makes up discretionary spending these days? Yeah, I don't know. Can we necessarily categorize it as as, as non-discretionary? But I do think that, you know, we need to take like maybe take into consideration what people prioritize in life when it comes to subscriptions. So um, I don't think we're going to see huge cancellations of Spotify or, or Apple Music. I think people find those too essential. I think most of the, like mo- they're averaging probably like $10 a month. Like I think most people would find that in their budget. But as you said, in the intro, consumers are spending like 135 a month on subscriptions. That seems a little bit high at the moment. Um, so I would say that probably some more minor streaming services or subscription services may begin to feel a pinch here. I think we're going to see a concentration of power and you know that's obviously going to benefit all of the all of the big players as like all of us have said for a while now we've heard it from Emmett we've heard it from Rory probably the streaming wars is going to result in like three or four big name players because they are operating a huge scale so they can make streaming worthwhile you know they can push towards some sort of 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 margin and I just think like this is the time when smaller streamers are going to get pushed out even like this week we heard that Lionsgate is pulling its streaming service which is was called Stars. they rebranded it last month to Lionsgate Plus, it didn't do anything. So they're pulling it out of seven markets, which includes the vast majority of Europe and all of Japan. Their decision to exit these markets cost them about $215 million. And at the time of recording, Lionsgate Plus had about 27 million global subscribers, which is what, like a tenth of what uh, Netflix is carrying. And um, this last quarter, they only saw an increase of 1 million subscribers, which isn't great. The vast majority of these subscribers are in the United States. And a lot of people end up with star subscriptions because it comes with their cable. So it's not even people like seeking out this service necessarily. Apparently, like from what we've heard from management, this move is in an effort to streamline the media business ahead of a potential spinoff or a sale. So this is kind of what we saw coming. These minor players are not going to ever get to a scale in which streaming is worthwhile for them. So they're going to revert back to traditional methods. And we're seeing the exact same thing from Warner Brothers, which is maybe a little bit shocking because they control HBO, which is you know maybe the second or third best streaming service available. But they have repeatedly said, we are struggling to execute. We are struggling to turn a profit. And we know that we can be successful going to the box office. So we're going back there. We're going to start making big budget movies, you know, five or six year. We're going to movie theaters and they can show up on streaming services eight weeks later. So I do think we're going to see a concentration of power here. And that's going to result from people maybe canceling subscription services that they don't get, you know, the bang for their buck from. So I'd say they're probably going to go away. And that's going to mean that. You know, we may see smaller studios coming back to Netflix or Amazon and agreeing to negotiate licensing rights, which, again, puts even more power in the hands of Netflix to go to consumers and say, hey, like now we have all these movies like you should maintain your subscription. And I think we're going to see that like not even just in streaming. I think we're going to see it across the board like the New York Times managed a subscriber beat this quarter. I think we were all surprised by that. But I think a lot of that comes from the fact the New York Times has gone out of its way to try and provide nuanced national coverage to Americans, uh, especially on sports via the athletic acquisition. And I'd say probably in the exact same quarters, the New York Times is doing well. Probably localized papers are really struggling. And so, you know, I think if you can show people, hey, I can be the everyman, I have a product, you know, for any taste you have, I think it's much easier for people to justify that subscription. And, you know, you mentioned Amazon Prime in the intro, like you're getting two day shipping and you're getting Mm. like the B minus streaming service. So for most people, they're probably too comfortable, you know, with the two day shipping that it's not worthwhile them canceling. 
Yeah, it's like 80% of America or something has an Amazon Prime subscription. Yeah, and as they continue to add more like grocery stuff and day-to-day items, you know, it becomes less of, oh, go on Amazon to buy something I don't really need. And it's more of like, no, I do. Like my part of my weekly shop comes from Amazon, so I can't cancel Prime. Yeah, a Prime subscription should be added to the consumer price index. Just thinking about it there. Yeah, I think so. If I mean like younger and younger people, like probably the vast majority of young people have a Prime subscription and are running a, a huge chunk of their they're spending through it. So yeah, like it's yeah. probably a necessity almost at this point. Um, you mentioned there just a bit of concentration around the top streamers and how you kind of see it, see it culminating in maybe four or five big names. It, it's mm-hmm. probably the bigger names, the Disney's Apple, Amazon, Netflix are the ones that are going to win out just because they have the, the bigger war chest, more money, more money to lose. I think Disney, Disney lost crazy amounts of money on Disney plus this quarter. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it just comes from, I, I think, a year ago, we were discussing how Netflix is far and away like the most efficient streaming service when it comes to spending. You know, we talked about Squid Game. That was made with like $20 million. That's insane when it comes to television. And it boiled down to something like they got 14 cents per view because so many people watch Squid Game. Like Netflix is just so good at producing a huge amount of content for the same budget as, as Disney, whereas I think Disney's more kind of focused on spectacle. So yeah, I'd say we're going to see probably Netflix emerge, Amazon, and yeah, I think it's going to be probably Disney and like maybe Apple is going to be the fine down there at the bottom with like some specialized stuff. Yeah. So then I have a question for you. Out of all your subscriptions, what are you going to, what would you cancel first and what would you never cancel? I like I, my Apple Music subscription, I don't think I could ever cancel because I genuinely use it every single day. So yeah. I. Yeah. I also I think you're a lunatic for using Apple Music over Spotify. Apple Sorry, music. what? Yeah, <laughs> shocking. I'll, t- I'll tell you why I use Apple Music. It's because I still have an active student subscription because there was a flaw in like our university system, and it still has me registered as a student, so I get a discount. So I have <laughs> oh, Apple Music yeah, I mean, for that reason. That's that fucking gonna get us kicked off Apple Podcasts. I don't know what. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I wonder what the whistleblower fee for something like that is. Probably nothing. Um, Tim, yes. probably <laughs> nothing. <laughs> um, so I have a nice discount going there, so I probably wouldn't cancel that. Um, I don't know. I don't have many subscriptions. I have Amazon, and again, because I have a student membership, I have Apple TV for free, so I don't pay for that. So You shouldn't be divulging all this. This <laughs> yeah, gets published sorry. on Apple Podcasts, like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there must be my- one person who works for Apple who listens to us. Nah. Um, there must be one person who listens to us. Yeah. It would may, it would have to it would, it would have to maybe be Amazon Prime simply because we're in like a weird transitionary period at the second where like Amazon.co.uk some stuff they won't now deliver yeah, to Ireland you have to go from and we Germany ha- or something. Yeah, and we haven't yet properly gotten incorporated into that system, and so like half the time I want to buy something on Amazon and it won't ship to Ireland. So like I would maybe do yeah cancel that. Yeah, Rory, what would you never cancel? Um, it would probably be my Spotify. Yeah, to be honest. Uh, I also go on Amazon Prime because um, I, yeah, I do use it. I do use it a huge amount. I regularly like have a few pints in the pub and go back and like order a lot of books I'm never <laughs> going to read, and they just show up at my door. Yeah, robot, uh, like, robot kettles or something. I don't even remember ordering that <laughs> Thai cookbook. Yeah. Very good. Not too bad. So we have some very ex- exciting news here at Stock Club. In two weeks' time, we'll be hosting Stock Club Live here in Dublin. This is going to be our first ever live podcast. And in it, Emmett, Rory, Amory, and I are going to look back on what has been a brutal year for the stock market. It might be a bit of a post-mortem. And looking ahead to 2023, I'm sure we're going to have some bold and predictably foolhardy predictions in place as well. This is taking place in the Herbert Park Hotel in Dublin on Wednesday, the 23rd of November. 
Tickets are limited and selling quickly. They're available right now. We're going to leave the link in the description and they're going for 20 quid a head, which includes a couple of drinks. So you won't be too bored listening to us. Uh, for anyone listening from further field, don't worry, we'll be planning more stock club events in 2023 outside of Dublin and even outside of Ireland. So watch this space. Rory and Marie, are you looking forward to going on stage, <laughs> overcoming your fear of public speaking? Where's the, um, where's, where are the international ones? Oh, uh, I know we have a big audience in Bermuda. Bermuda. Great, yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. We're like the number one podcast in Bermuda. 100%. We might get some tax breaks if we go out there as a... <laughs> Yeah, we should start moving the business out there. We should just move. We should all move to <laughs> podcast on idea. the beach. Yeah, I could do with that. My partner yeah. recently got a job offer from Bermuda and she turned it down. So this would be a massive, uh, that would be a, a real, uh, a real swerve of me if I didn't just like, oh, she, I'm moving. <laughs> she got a job offer from the country of Bermuda or the company was just based there? I don't know. I don't, okay. I don't even know what she does. There's a lot Fair of companies enough. based in Bermuda, I'm <laughs> We could be based in Bermuda. We don't even know. How are we feeling for it? Um, I have not received like the firm questions of what we're going to be talking about yet. I haven't even been asked to do it. So that's just the first I heard about it. That's yeah. not true. I told you when you came back from vacation, the first call. <laughs> we're supposed <laughs> to be selling this here. Okay. <laughs> um, because you came back from vacation and the first call we had, I was like, oh, I'll break this to Rory so that he knows and he can start mentally preparing for this, for this ask. I remember that. Anyway. Rory doesn't, Rory doesn't like preparation. He comes alive on the stage. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it would be kind of that year in review. We've done a few of them before. I'll have to yeah. go. I'll have to go back over the old episodes and get all our awful predictions out again. How bad were your guys' predictions? Mine's kind of fine from the beginning of the year. I don't know. I can't even remember. I that genuinely I don't even remember what my prediction was. I mean, okay. one of those years. Yeah. You got your Beyond Meat one right eventually, didn't you? Eventually, yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Mm. All comes good in the end. Okay, so for more amazing Beyond Me <laughs> <laughs> predictions, uh, 23rd November in the Herbert Park Hotel in Dublin. We'll see you there. Uh, moving on to mailbag then. We got a few questions in around stock-based compensation. It's kind of been a hot topic of late, especially with declining valuations in the tech center, uh, tech sector. Rory, could you elaborate a bit on what exactly is stock-based compensation and why it can be an issue for investors? Sure, yeah. Stock-based compensation, SBC, also known as employee options or ESOP, is it's just a way for companies to reward their employees through kind of equity ownership in the company. That's, you know, opposed to, say, how one usually gets compensated with a salary or, you know, monetary bonus payment. Um, these aren't, by the way, to be confused with options that are available to investors. So, you know, they're not traded on in any exchange. Um, they're given as, as like benefits to employees. And I suppose the kind of number one kind of use case for them uh, has been as employee retention. Um, so a way to attract and retain talent. So, you know, you think of a lot of technology startups, you, there's plenty of stories out there about you know, some guy who joined Meta or Facebook, you know, when it was when it was starting out and, and basically became like a billionaire just through kind of his, his startup options. So small startups typically use stock options to kind of attract employees that maybe they wouldn't be able to attract in a, in a more competitive market when they're going up against kind of bigger technology companies with kind of big, bigger budgets. Of course, big technology companies also offer stock options the majority of the time, which can be a way to attract employees, obviously, as well as retain employees. The retention element of it is because options usually vest over a period of time. So, you know, if you have a large number of options vesting, you're less likely to leave the company knowing that you would 
lose those options. Another reason and some people are a bit skeptical of this is that it aligns employees with management in terms of you know trying to make the company succeed. So the better the company does, the more valuable your options are. Uh, now, like in terms of what this means for investors, obviously there's there's benefits to the business if they're not spending cash on employees' wages. And that's particularly true of kind of companies that don't have a lot of cash. So companies that are you know, losing money or companies that are, you know, still starting out. Um, a lot of these times, these companies have, you know, they're, they're pretty cash poor um, and share rich because, um, you know, when your company's not worth anything, you can print as many shares as you want. No one's going to stop you. But, you know, whatever, what happens is, is that it can end up having, you know, quite a big impact when, when businesses start kind of using this in lieu of cash when the company's not growing. You know, uh, what, what we, tend, we tend to think is, I see, is a lot of companies will kind of use this as kind of like free currency. So, yeah, we don't have the cash to, play, to pay employees, you know, the millions of dollars that, they're, that, that we need to pay them. So we're just going to give them stock options. And obviously, you know, that, that's not the case. It isn't free currency. You know, money doesn't come from nowhere. It has to come from somewhere. And where that most you know, where it most likely comes from is in the form of these shares, which in terms of a public company, you know, companies can be spending millions, maybe billions on, on this uh, stock-based compensation. That's going to end up falling down to very much the bottom line in terms of there's going to be a lot more shares out there and that it ends up diluting current shareholders. So SBC, you know, it's kind of one of these things that people argue about. On one side, there's people who say, you know, you know, if you talk about like Warren Buffett has a very good quote, which says, you know, if options aren't a form of compensation, then what are they? Um, if compensation isn't an expense, then what is it? And if expenses shouldn't go into the calculation of earnings, then where in the world should it go? So there's people who kind of say that companies use uh, stock based compensation to kind of hide what's really going on in the business that, you know, they're they're basically paying a lot of employees, which is a huge cost with with shares rather than cash and that's making their bottom line look a bit better and that's deceiving employees um and at the end of the day it's it's diluting shareholders um there's another you know the other way of looking at it is that you know it's it's a way for companies to grow the business without the use of cash and that's an important especially when companies don't have a huge amount of cash um so there's arguments on both sides uh i would say that you know if you're if you're really keen on finding out like is it going to impact your investment? You probably have to look a little bit deeper and see, you know, how is the, you know, nearly all companies use some form of SBC out there. You really have to go and see like, how much is that actually impacting the business? There's loads of, you know, cases out there where companies have done the absolute worst thing. And probably Twitter is probably the most famous example where, you know, back in 2017, I think it was, they were spending something like 29% of revenue on share-based compensation. And this was a company that wasn't making any profit at that point. Um, so you're talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars going to pay staff when the company wasn't making any money. And in order for investors to recoup that, the company was going to grow like super fast in order to just make up that loss. Um, there's other companies, and you know, I think that when you go and you read into their proxy statements, they're very much targeted. You know, the share-based compensation is based on performance, based on key metrics. If you can see it being based on key metrics that are long-term metrics rather than short-term metrics, all the better. But yeah, I mean, there's, it, there's no one right answer to it. It's really done on a case-by-case basis of whether it's kind of a good thing or a bad thing or whether investors should be really worried about it or they shouldn't really worry that much about it. Yeah, very nice. 
So it depends. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Thanks. Bill. Like like most things in this world, there's no, <laughs> there's no just straight up answer. It's a, nice, it's a nice gray area. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, right. Moving on then. We're going to finish off with the elevator pitches. Uh, Anne-Marie, what company have you been looking at recently? I am checking back in with a company that I have pitched twice before, but I'm really interested in them, which is Amory, could you get us a new app? No. <laughs> no. I cannot. We're going because, for the hat Because uh, I really like it, and I was kind of waiting to see how it was going to do is in these Barkbox? economic times. No, it's NerdWallet. Do you remember NerdWallet? Oh, I remember NerdWallet, too. Yeah. I like it. Just a refresher, they they provide uh, information that educates users in making financial decisions. You know, if you Google what you credit card is right, you definitely forgot about this up. part of the podcast until we started recording, didn't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, so I've been watching them because I think an interesting kind of pivot for NerdWallet is they help banks, like, advertise, essentially, or go and find new users for their products. And because advertising is having such a hard time at the minute with iOS 14.5 and all that stuff, I think NerdWallet's, like, value proposition to banks has increased substantially in terms of, like, this is a great place to find high-value customers. Um, And that was kind of proven true in their latest quarterly report that was published this week. Uh, they delivered 45% year-over-year revenue growth and generated $14.5 million of adjusted EBITDA, which is pretty good. They have not – this is their first quarter being profitable. Um, and then they had $19 million average monthly unique users, which was up 11% year-over-year, which I liked because the last couple quarters we'd seen that metric stall a little bit, I think, as you know, conditions kind of deteriorated in terms of the economy. People got a bit nervous. Um, but yeah, I was pretty impressed with this quarter. One thing, sales and marketing costs are still climbing. That was something that came up in their first look and their second look. But I do think it's them trying to set up themselves as being like the end-all, be-all. You go there for financial advice rather than being reliant on Google, which I do like that idea. They're trying to set themselves up that way because you know Google can change the algorithm and it could all be over. Um, yeah. And just, I love their CEO, Tim Chen. He's the founder. Uh, he owns a huge part of the business. He seems super nice. Uh, stock is down 47% this year. They're just about at a $1 billion market cap. So really small, but I just, it's a very like mission driven business. I really like it. It's, you know, it would be an easy add to a portfolio because it's a good company. To, it's an easy company to feel good about. So yeah. yeah. Well, if they want to be the number one place to go to for financial advice, they'll have to beat out this podcast as well. Well, when was the last time we reviewed a credit card? <laughs> well, this is also not financial advice. I think we have to say that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Rory, what's your uh, elevator pitch for us? I'm looking at a very, very boring business called Broadridge Financial Solutions. The ticker symbol is BOR. Uh, it's one of those businesses that I suspect most people have never heard of, but you've probably interacted with at some point in your life, particularly if you're listening to this podcast. Um, and that's because Broadridge Financial is the biggest player in proxy and interim communications. Uh, the, I mean, to try and explain the business in a very quick nutshell, most people who hold shares in the United States and further abroad don't actually hold them. You know, there's very few people um, who actually have share certificates in their cabinets anymore. Uh, what actually happens is that you have an online broker, digital broker, um, and the broker owns those shares on your behalf. So you're what's called a kind of beneficial owner. Uh, and that causes a big problem. Um, because companies, uh, mutual funds, ETFs, etc., they need to communicate with their investors, and you know it's it's hard for them to figure out who the who the actual investor that they need to communicate with is. Uh, so Broadridge essentially handles all these types of communications with end investors. It's kind of a third party in between the the broker and the um, 
and the company or the mutual fund that ends up getting you know all those everything from you know reports proxy materials for voting anything that the company needs to disclose to investors all kind of runs through broadridge uh, and you know it's they're pretty much the kind of only game in town uh, which is a nice place to be pretty much every brokerage out there uses them uh, and there's kind of some very kind of old laws that essentially makes it impossible for brokers to kind of swerve this and there's minimal amounts that they have to pay for their services um so it's kind of one of those very i suppose safe and solid businesses it's the company that brings in around you know 5.5 5.7 billion last year uh grows you know somewhere between 10 and 15 percent a year they kind of you know they kind of got a a boost during the pandemic with this kind of rise in in um retail investors and so i was kind of i was kind of watching expecting them to get smashed in the most recent quarter because as we know retail investing has really fallen off or off a cliff in the last couple of months um but actually it wasn't too bad they they did miss but not by much and they've maintained guidance going forward so uh yeah i'm digging a bit deeper into broadridge financial solutions very good that's a very uh, peter lynch-esque stock isn't it boring yeah but... i'm actually funnily enough i'm actually also looking at crown holdings which is uh, the new name for Crown Cork and Seal, which you wrote about extensively in this book. <laughs> you, you must be having great sleep these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, lads. Uh, that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review, a review for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.